0: 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, And to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went on to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord! I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me here, bring here to me Agag the king of the the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel.
1: Lord Jesus, we thank you for these narratives. Uh, They're uh, perplexing in many ways, but they do teach us uh, what kind of leader we need as God's people. Help us, Lord, to learn, to concentrate, and to apply, and therefore to obey. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now the books of 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament are all about the leader God's people need. That's why they're in the Bible to teach God's people wherever they stand in salvation history about the leader, the king, God's people need. Now the answer is Jesus. I made that comment with a big afternoon in. The answer is Jesus. But God has given us the whole of the Bible to teach us who Jesus is and why we need him as our leader. And these narratives, these events of history, uh, teach us often in very challenging ways and in very moving ways why it is that ultimately Jesus is the king. He is the leader God's people need. One of the ways that Uh, the Bible teaches us about the kind of king, the kind of leader we need, is to show us what wrong leadership is like and what happens when God's people look to the wrong kind of uh, leader. And in these chapters, and we're going to look today at chapters 13 through 15, there's one aspect of leadership that is the focus And that aspect of leadership is obedience or not to God's Word. Saul, who is the king, is not the king or leader God's people need. He is a negative example for this reason. He does not obey God's Word. Now we'll see the implications of that and the application of this is that the leader we need the king we need as God's people is one who always obeys God's word now these narratives are provocative and you realize that as we read them they're very very strong and serious stuff going on now I've got three points you'll see them on the insert in the service sheet that we handed out. We're not able obviously to read chapters 13, 14 and 15. Let me encourage you though, if you can this afternoon or at some stage, to read the rest of the material that we would love to have read, and to see how these points or principles are worked out in space and time history, and the details that the writer records. So first point, Saul disobeys God's word and therefore cannot be the king God's people uh, need. I want to try and move through this quickly so we can really get to grips with and think through the application of this uh, for us. Now chapter 13, uh, Roger looked at last week and we begin with that this week. Let me just quickly summarize what happens in chapter 13. It is printed out for you in the service sheet. Saul and God's people are facing the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemies of God. We don't have physical enemies. We fight against flesh and blood, against spiritual forces as the church. But in the old covenant, God's people, when they entered the promised land, the land that God had given to them were opposed by physical enemies, the Philistines the Amalekites and others. And uh, the events of chapter 13, Saul, the leader of God's people, the king of God's people, and his army are in a perilous position. They are facing destruction by the Philistines at Gilgal. And uh, Saul, as he looks with his eyes at what is in front of him, destruction and defeat seems to be Inevitable. And the people are pressing Saul. Come on, Saul, what are we going to do? Don't do nothing. Now, Samuel, Samuel in the narrative in this time in history is God's prophet. Samuel speaks for God. And Saul knows he must listen to God's prophet who speaks for God. And earlier, uh, Samuel had given Saul this instruction. Go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. In other words, Saul, don't do anything until I come and offer sacrifices to the Lord. This is Samuel, God's priest. And show you what to do. Don't do anything. Until you're told what to do. Now the events of chapter 13. As they are told. Seven days pass. Or the beginning of the seventh day comes. And Samuel has not yet appeared. Saul knows he needs to wait for him. But Saul panics. Or he makes a decision. He offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Now he doesn't wait for Samuel. Now I I, I think that our reactions humanly to what is being recorded here, if this is your reaction, are, are right, that we feel sympathy with Saul. Is it not understandable and reasonable what he did? He was faced with the enemy. He was the king. Yes, God had told him through his prophet that he must not act without an instruction from the Lord. But the people were scattering everywhere. His his army was full of desertion. So he offers a sacrifice to the Lord himself. Is that not understandable and reasonable and excusable? Well, what matters is God's verdict spoken through his prophet Samuel. Let me just read a couple of verses from chapter 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. And then these words that are repeated again and again through these chapters. You have not kept the commands of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. You have not kept the command of the Lord. Notice that Samuel's assessment, and remember Samuel speaks from God, of Saul's actions and his conclusion that they are foolish is because he has not done what God said he was to do as the king. You have not kept what the Lord has commanded you to do. And uh, in chapter 13, Samuel says, and he repeats it in the passage that Freddie read for us, chapter 15, because he has not kept the command of the Lord, he is not fit to be the king. The judgment on Saul is severe. Our emotions are with him, mine are. We understand his predicament because like him, it is beyond us to obey God's word fully, always. But here lies the point. The leader we need precisely because we are fickle in our obedience. The leader I need because I cannot trust myself to make the right decisions is a leader I can always trust to always do what is right. In other words, obey God's word. A leader who will not do what we want if it's not what God wants a leader who will always speak the truth to us, a leader who will always do what is right, and the only way that can happen, the lesson of these chapters, is if the leader always obeys God's word. Otherwise, we cannot have absolute confidence in the leader. Otherwise, we'd be weighing up, is this a good decision, should I follow this decision or not? And then this, if the king of God's people does not do what God tells them to do, if they disobey God, then they put themselves as leader in the place of God. And God's people will in effect be leaderless. If a priest does not do what God says, does not rightly intercede for God's people, then that priest takes the place of God. If a prophet does not do what God tells them to say, then that prophet takes the place of God. And if a king is told to do something by God and they don't do it, how can we trust them? If a prophet is told to say something and doesn't say it quite, how can we trust them? That's what happens in chapter 13. Now chapter 14, the second point on the sheet, Jonathan acts like the king God's people need. Jonathan acts like the king God's people need. Now, it's a long chapter, and I commend it to you to read in your own time. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan will have a prominent role in the narrative from this point onwards. His role in the narrative in 1 Samuel is primarily as an example to us of devoted service to God's chosen King David. So from chapter 16, which we'll look at from next week, the focus of the narrative is on David. David. God's chosen king, King David. And Jonathan, the son of Saul, pledges his loyalty in covenant love to David. Jonathan is an example of devotion to the king. And we'll learn a lot from that. But here in chapter 15, Jonathan is presented to us in a different way. He is presented to us in contrast to his father, Saul. Jonathan acts like the king God's people need. Now, let me quickly summarize 1 Samuel chapter 15. Jonathan and his armor bearer, just two of them, and Jonathan is no fool. He is a soldier. He is a prince. He is astute in military tactics and so on and so forth. Jonathan and his armor bearer conclude that if God is with them, then God is as capable of defeating the Philistines just with the two of them infiltrating the Philistine camp as he is with a whole army bearing down on the Philistines. Now, it's really important that we don't conclude that Jonathan is foolhardy. There's no evidence for that at all. He is an astute military commander. But his conclusion is one of faith. God had said, Luke, my promise to you is that you will advance against the Philistines. And Jonathan says, well, God said that. He can do that with an army or he can do it with you and me. Let me just quote to you one verse from chapter 14. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord for saving by many or by few. Notice his words. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord for saving by many or by few. This is not foolhardiness. It is faith and confidence in God. Nor is it presumption or arrogance. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Jonathan has confidence in God. Absolute confidence. Saul had confidence in God, but not enough for him to be the leader. And uh, as the narrative unfolds, Jonathan with his one soldier infiltrate the uh, enemy camp and through various uh, circumstances, there is a significant victory for God's people against the Philistines. Ironically, it's Saul who takes the credit for the victory and Jonathan humbly moves into the background. Now, while we cannot be confident, we can be like Jonathan. And of course we can't. As an example of the kind of leadership we need here, he points away from himself to David in time, but ultimately to the Lord Jesus. And in a couple of chapters time, we'll see David going to fight Goliath, the mighty Philistine. And David takes off his armor. He walks out against the enemies of God with a sling and some stones. Not because he's stupid, but because he has absolute faith and confidence in the promise of God. And what the narrative is building up for us is the key lesson from this section of God's Word, the leader God's people need is a leader who always does what God says. Now, back to chapter 15, which uh, Freddie read for us, and it's the same title as, chapter, as point one, with one addition. Saul disobeys God's word and therefore cannot be the king God's people need. And the addition, the emphatic addition, God rejects Saul as a king. Why labor the point? Why record chapter 13 and chapter 15? Because the events happened, they did. There's a lot of events that happened in these uh, times that are not recorded in the narrative. Why record chapter 13 when Saul was told to do something, he didn't quite do it and Samuel comes and says, you cannot be the king. Why record it twice? Because the writer wants us to really struggle emotionally if you like to come to terms with the justice and the rightness of God's rejection of Saul as the king God's people need because he would not do everything the Lord asked him. We need to come to terms with the fact that the leader we need never disobeys God's word in the realm of the obedience or disobedience that we see in 1 Samuel 13 to 15. Now, what the Lord asks Saul to do is terrible and shocking. It is an act of judgment on the Amalekites. We're told that in verse 18. The Amalekites had consistently opposed God and his people in their taking possession of the promised land, and God's judgment is now against them. But what Saul is asked to do is terrible. And we mustn't try and explain it away. But God's judgment is a terrible thing. We must not diminish how terrible God's judgment is. It is nonetheless a terrible commission that is given to the king. Saul summoned his army. He came to the city of Amalek, having warned the Kenites who had been kind to God's people to leave that they might not be destroyed along with the Amalekites, Saul and his army engaged the Amalekites and defeated them. But he took Agag the king alive and Saul and the people, notice later on he blames the people, Saul and the people, verse 9 of chapter 15, kept the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs. Now, is that not reasonable? Or is it not just fair to say that Saul asked to do something terrible, did it almost... is there not grace or kindness in Saul? All that he had done is spared Agag the king in an act of mercy and the best of the livestock in order, as he would claim later, to sacrifice them to the Lord. But the point of the narrative and it is not easy for us to come to terms with this and that's the purpose of this is that Saul concluded that he knew better than God Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. There's the phrase again. He's not followed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Why was Samuel angry? And why did he cry to the Lord all night? Perhaps he was despairing over Saul again and again. Saul had been told that as the king of God's people, he must obey the word of the God. Perhaps Samuel was struggling with Saul's disobedience. I wonder, though, if Samuel is struggling and angry with the Lord's severity of his assessment of Saul's failure and his judgment. Samuel, God's prophet, is wrestling with the reasonableness of God or the unreasonableness. But the narrative goes on to record Samuel telling Saul again that the Lord has rejected him as king because he has disobeyed the word of the Lord. Verse uh, uh, 19. Why then did you not obey? There's the obedience again. Saul protests that he has obeyed, that he has just spared the king and kept the best of the animals to make offerings. Verse twenty-two: The Lord, Samuel says, his, uh, the Lord says through Samuel his prophet, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings compared with obeying the voice of the Lord? No. And then the conclusion, twenty-three B: Because you have rejected. The word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being uh, king. Now, God does not reject us because we disobey the word of God. But we are not the leader God's people need, are we? The point of this is we need a leader who never ever disobeys the word of God. Now, Saul is not the leader God's people need. Jonathan shows up his father and positively points us to the kind of king we need. King David, whose life, whose kingship is the focus of the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel, shows us the kind of king we need. But David is not the king The king God's people need is Jesus. Now we know that. What do these chapters teach us though that we need to come to terms with? We need a king who always obeys God's word. Consider, consider how hard it was in two respects for the Lord Jesus to obey God's word and consider the consequences if he had not. Jesus in Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Romans 5 and 19 concluding on what happened because Jesus obeyed. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Philippians 2, being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. It was Jesus' obedience to his Father's word and will that took him to the cross. Had Jesus not obeyed at that critical moment, And his human heart wrestled far more than Saul's human heart. The anguish of what obedience would mean. Had Jesus not obeyed, in that crisis moment, there would be no salvation. But chapters thirteen through fifteen in one Samuel are about God's judgment. These terribly severe descriptions of God's judgment. Jesus reigns as God's King now, and when He returns, He will return as Judge of all people, and the judgment. God's just judgment on all humanity that has not acknowledged Him as their Savior and Lord and King will be as terrible and as shocking and as fearful as any judgment spoken of and described in the Old Testament. Our job is not as the church to bring any form of physical judgment But Jesus will in the end of time. It's what the Bible describes as hell. Eternal judgment. And Jesus will carry out that word of instruction. And we can trust him to do that, awful as it is. Because if he does not do that, there is no divine justice. Now, these are two aspects of the leader we need. We need a leader who obeys God's word. And Jesus obeyed God's word and went to the cross to save us. And we need a leader who will obey God's word and return as judge of all. And every other aspect that Jesus brings us as a leader falls within these two points of reference. If he died for us, he will never leave us. Now, our salvation and the outworking of all human history depends on Jesus' obedience. Now, let me draw out three applications as we close. What do these chapters tell us about how we should view leadership in the world, human leadership? I was thinking uh, this uh, week about the best examples of human leadership. I think for me, they are sports people. I'm not talking about the managers of the teams. The actual sports people, the men and women who we watch on the field. I think they really do show us sometimes examples of great leadership, really when they exhibit sort of servant-heartedness or great endeavor or devotion. But when you look at the managers, well, they always fail in the end. Mostly, there are one or two exceptions. But by and large, leadership in that realm is impossible. What about in the world of business and work? Well, there are some great examples of leadership. But there are many, many, many flawed examples of leadership. Think of the principle in chapter uh, 9 and 10 of of 1 Samuel. Rog looked at that. Human leaders take God's leader gives. What about in the realms of politics? If you've ever seen a YouTube clip or whatever of the inside of 10 Downing Street, I'm assuming that none of you have been inside 10 Downing Street, but someone will tell me that they have. And they have that big staircase. And you go up that staircase, there's a picture of every prime minister. I was trying to think of the prime ministers through the 20th and 21st century how many of them have gone down in history as leaders who have succeeded? Hardly any. What does that say to us about leadership in the world? That it's flawed in the sense that it does not obey the word of God because it outright rejects God and leads in the place of God, or even when it purports to lead in obedience to God's word, it cannot do so without compromise. No leader in the world always does what is right. No leader in the world should therefore be followed unquestioningly. No leader in the world can be absolutely trusted Now, the point I'm trying to make is, as Christians, we should not expect more from our human leaders than they are, as humans, able to give. I am not saying that we are not to respect them, but we should not expect more from them than they are able to deliver. Nor, I think, are we to join in to the same extent with skepticism and cynicism. Because to us as Christians, as we study narratives like this, we are given sight of reality so that we have a realistic view of what human leadership can deliver. It is striking, isn't it, especially in these complex times, that we all have a view as to how if we were the leader, whether in Westminster or in Holyrood or in our local councils, wherever, if we were in charge or if we were in charge of that football team, we would get it right. It's how we talk. We weigh up the adequacy or inadequacy of human leaders, but if we are honest, really honest, we know that we would do no better. There are very occasional moments when our political leaders admit to that, or our civil servants. I have enjoyed listening to Jason Leach on Off the Ball. If you don't know what Off the Ball is, it's a kind of cultural football program on Saturday lunchtimes, and he comes on every week I think he comes on every week as the National Clinical Director because half the population listens to Off The Ball. People ask questions and he answers them straight. And occasionally he will say, look, it's impossible, we can't please everybody, we can't get it right, we can't get it wrong. It's an honest answer. Why can't I see my mum or dad and have a coffee in their house, why can I do that in a cafe? And he answers, well, we're just trying to weigh up and balance up to get an overall picture that's safe. We can't get it right. And we realize in moments like that, that were we in that position, we would do no better. If leadership of any form comes your way, you will soon realize that around you everyone has a view and that it is very different from talking about leadership and from actually trying to do it. Moreover, leadership in the world is typically accountable, but not to God. Leadership that is accountable to God is safer leadership than leadership that is not. It is, though, a fundamental principle of democracy that we are accountable to one another. But when the accountability is to humanity, who are as flawed as the leader is flawed, it doesn't work, or it really works, which is why democracy is the worst form of government apart from every other form, Churchill. The cycle of politics, we vote people in, we vote them out, we get excited, it will be better, it really is. Now that does not lead us and shouldn't lead us as Christians to cynicism. It should lead us with the eyes of faith to differentiate the very best of human leadership with the leadership of the Lord Jesus. How do we view the leadership of Jesus, God's King? Well, the purpose in writing these books, 1 and 2 Samuel, is not merely to tell us who is the leader we need, but to persuade us, to convince us, so that we will look to him, so that we will be devoted to him, so that we will never leave his side, so that we will have complete confidence in him, so that we will submit to him, serve him, love him, stand with him, never diverted from loyalty to him. Jesus always does what the Father says, so he is absolutely to be trusted. How do we view Christian leadership? And with this we close. Christian leaders... Are to be humble, always leading under Jesus, under God, never replacing them. What is humility, though, when push comes to shove? What is the acid test of humility in a Christian leader? Not being meek or mild. but always doing and saying what God says. That means speaking and teaching the Bible. When every human instinct in you, emotionally, is to say something different because you happen to live in a period of history where people's itching ears want something different. Christian leaders should always say what Jesus says in his word, should always give and not take, and Christian leaders must not be manipulated by people to do what they say, and that is so hard. I want to say to you in all seriousness as this church family, if the leaders that have been said over you in this church. Stop saying what God's Word says or start to take rather than give or are manipulated and malleable to the views and wishes of those who shout loudest. then you need to change that leadership fast. Otherwise, you will go on a long, long slide until 10, 20, 30, or a generation later. A local church comes to terms with the fact that the leader they do need is Jesus and leaders under him who will do what he says and teach what he says. Christian leaders must be answerable and accountable to God. Now these chapters leave us with our minds firmly and squarely on the Lord Jesus, who is such a worthy and wonderful leader. From these chapters today, a wonderful and worthy leader because he always does what God says. He died to save us and he will return to judge us. And therefore there is justice and salvation in the world. Let's not be cynical about human leaders, but let's be realistic. And those of you who are in leadership and a great many of people in Chalmers are, or those of you who will be in the future, lead with Christ in your hearts humbly, giving, not taking, and recognize the limitations of your ability to lead as a human and use these limitations to speak of the leader that you have found in life who is always right and always true and always dependable. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these chapters in your word that have so much to say to us about leadership, about Jesus' leadership, and about how we evaluate leadership in the world. Lord, we pray that as Christians, we would be freed perhaps of some of the cynicism that is so dominant and prevailing in our culture as we think of human leadership. Not because we are naive, but because we are realistic and can see and understand the limits of human leadership. We pray, therefore, that our human leaders would look to God as their leader and so lead better. We pray for all those in leadership in Chambers in different ways in public life or in church life that they would lead looking to their leader, Jesus, and lead with him in their hearts, shaping and molding their actions and thoughts. But mostly, Lord Jesus, we pray that as a church family and as individuals, we would look by Jesus, who stands as a colossus, who stands apart, who stands as meriting our loyalty and who is utterly dependable utterly trustworthy and the leader we all need and can have through faith thank you for Jesus our leader and in his name we pray and for his sake Amen